I want you to take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read on, and today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. Now, if you're not sure how to find Revelation, uh, it's very simple. I'll put a graphic up on the screen behind me. Revelation is one of the easiest books in the Bible to find because it's the very last book. So go towards the end of your Bible and you're going to stumble across Revelation. Uh, if you have the Bible app loaded on your uh, device, we're also in the Bible app. And so you can go to the Bible app, follow the uh, instructions on the screen behind me, uh, and you can locate our, our message, uh, follow along with the passages we're going to be reading through and the notes that we'll be talking about today. So feel free to do that if you'd like to do that this morning. When I was in college, uh, we uh, had a mission team that went down to South Texas. I, I grew up in the Texas panhandle around Amarillo. And we had a mission team that went down to South Texas to do a mission outreach uh, over spring break. And I didn't get to go because I had to work. Being a responsible adult sometimes isn't the best. But I didn't get to go on this mission trip. But on the weekend when they were coming back, me and a friend of mine who also didn't get to go, uh, we had that weekend off. So we decided we were going to meet them halfway back on their trip back, which was around San Antonio. Uh, and the, the practice was with this particular mission trip, uh, on the way back, with the, the group would stop in San Antonio and uh, spend time uh, doing all the touristy things in San Antonio. And so we thought, well, we'll meet them down in San Antonio. Now, this is back in the mid-90s. And for some of you who are younger, there was no GPS back then. So you couldn't just plug in the address of where you were going into your phone or a device and just let it guide you there. This was the age of maps and MapQuest. How many of you remember MapQuest? Yeah. Basically, what you would have to do is you would have to plan your trip ahead of time, get on your computer, and have MapQuest print you off a map with turn-by-turn -turn directions, and you would have to have this packet of paper with you as you drove. And if you made a mistake, you had to backtrack because it didn't reroute you, it's paper. And so you would have to figure out, where did I go wrong? What led me astray? What turn did I take that I wasn't supposed to take? Or what turn did I miss that I was supposed to take? So anyways... My friend Ryan and I are heading down to San Antonio. Ryan is my navigator. He's got the MapQuest packet out. And when I say packet, it was like eight pages of turn-by-turn -turn directions. And so he's navigating. We, we get down to San Antonio. And we were going to a place called the Riverwalk. And the Riverwalk had this big, uh, tall, like spherical, uh, uh, multi-story uh, building that, that was kind of the marker. You could see it from most of the places in San Antonio. And so we're doing the turn-by-turn -turn directions. We're going down the highway. And Ryan says, okay, exit here. So I exited the highway. And he goes, okay, now turn right. And I turn right and I think, but the big thing that is by the river walk, the tall thing that I can see is that way, and you're having me go that way. But you trust the map quest. So we turn right, and we ended up in this industrial part of San Antonio. There's, there's not anything touristy about this part of town. It's all warehouses and industrial complex and things like that. And I'm telling Ryan, I can see 
the building behind us, but I don't know how to get there. And so Ryan goes, well, I'll pull out the map. Okay, so stick with me if you're younger. He opens the glove compartment and pulls out a massive book. And inside this book has maps of everything in the United States, all the major highways. And so he thumbs through until he finds San Antonio. And I pull over into a parking lot so that I can see what cross streets were on. Long story short, we figured out that I had put into MapQuest such and such east, such and such road. And it was supposed to be such and such west, such and such road. We had gone the opposite direction. But again... You go by what MapQuest tells you because it doesn't reroute you. Long story short, it took us about an hour and a half to figure out how to get over to the river walk. We had to stop two times and ask for directions. All because I put in east instead of west on my computer. I was led astray by one letter. A W versus an E. Have you ever gotten lost? The bigger question is this. Everybody's gotten lost. Has someone or something ever led you astray? MapQuest led me astray, but only because I was dumb enough to put the wrong letter in the address. But has someone or something ever led you astray? What's interesting, Revelation 17 and 18 kind of talk about that. So I want you to take your Bibles today. Turn with me to 17, Revelation 17. We're going to begin in verse 1. Now as you're turning to Revelation 17, 1, let me do a really quick recap. We've gone through 16 chapters of one of the most complex books in the Bible. Chapter 1, John, who is one of Jesus' followers, one of his closest disciples, he's now an apostle, he has a vision. And he, in this vision, he goes up into heaven and Jesus talks to him and Jesus describes these titles that he has, these names that are given to him that speak of his power and his authority and what he's going to do and who he is. And then in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus tells John, hey, Write down seven letters to these seven churches, and when you go back out of this vision, I want you to deliver these seven letters to these seven churches. Then in chapters 4 and 5, we find that John sees the throne room of God, and he sees God sitting on his throne, and he has a scroll in his right hand. And we find that no one's able to open the scroll. No one's worthy. No one's found worthy to take the scroll from God's hand and open it up. Until finally one of the elders comes to John. And the elders were a group of guys, of saints that encircle God's throne and worship him continually. One of these 24 elders walks up to John and says, John, it's okay. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it says that John looked and he saw the lamb like one who had been slain, Jesus. And Jesus was deemed worthy to take that scroll out of God the Father's hand. And then he opens the seals, which bring judgments to the earth. We talked about this extensively last week. He opens the seals. And then out of the seventh seal comes seven trumpets, which are more judgments. 
And then out of the seventh trumpet comes these seven bowls, which are more judgments. And all of these judgments are judgments against the things that we tend to put our trust in or that tend to pull our worship away from God. So the things like government, financial security, the idea that peace is on the earth, the, the gods that we tend to place our trust in or worship. Now, we've talked about extensively also that we as westernized Americans don't tend to have little idols that we worship in our living rooms, but we do have things in our lives that tend to take precedence over God, don't we? And we, in a way, worship them. And so all of these seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls are judgments showing that none of those things are truly trustworthy. And then we get to an interesting passage in chapter 17. Something I also want to bring to mind is we've also seen this red dragon come out of the pit. The red dragon is Satan himself. And he establishes two beasts... Two things that will garner people's worship. One beast is some kind of political force, whether it be a government or some governmental leader. And the other beast will direct us to worship that government or governmental leader. And we talked about the mark of the beast. You can go back and listen to those messages if you weren't uh, with us on those days. And then we get to chapter 17. Look with me at what it says here in verses 1 through 6. Then one of the seven angels who had come, I was come and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet, another word for red, a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Verse 5, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Now, if you haven't been around for this series, please understand that everything here is symbolic. Very little of what we read here is supposed to be interpreted literally. This is a symbol of something bigger than what is actually here. So think about this prostitute that is being described. She's riding in on the red dragon. And we're going to find out later that that is Satan. She serves him. She's riding on him. He is taking her where she needs to go. And she represents... An image of two elements of this world. The first one being, she is the epitome of consumerism. 
If you read this passage again, verses 1 through 6, it talks about how she adorns herself and dresses herself in all of the most lavish and most expensive of attire. She is an example, an image of the consumerism that we tend to get caught up into. She's obsessed with showing off wealth and possessions and luxury. The second thing that she uh, is the image of is she is the epitome of pleasure as well. It speaks over and over of her sexual immorality and her drunkenness. So think for just a moment with me. We've talked about the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And those all were judgments against things that we tend to worship or put our trust in. But so far, Revelation has not dug deep into the sins that we catch ourselves living in. And that's what this prostitute represents. She represents the sinful nature, the sinful temptations, the sin desires that we so readily as people dive headfirst into. Knowing that we're not supposed to, knowing that as followers of Jesus we're not called to live in that sin, but we still tend to get caught up in it because we are sinful creatures. So it talks about how she seduces the people of the world with her materialism and her then talks about her displays of violence. The cup that she is drinking from is the blood of the martyrs. This is not something or someone that we as the followers of Jesus want to align ourselves with or follow. That's what the warning is here. Revelation 17 is warning us not to get caught up in these sinful desires that we so commonly get caught up in. And instead, encourages us to live rightly before God. She uses consumerism and lust and pleasure to pull people away from following God. This is actually pointing back to a guy named Balaam. Now, Balaam was mentioned earlier in Revelation in chapter 2. And Balaam was this guy from the book of Numbers. If you go back to the Old Testament, one of the first few books of the Old Testament is the book of Numbers. And there's this account where the people of Israel are traveling along. They're going through the wilderness to get to the promised land that God has given them. And along the way, there's this king named Balak. And Balak does not like the Israelites. He wants to stop them. He wants to destroy them. And so his idea to destroy them is to hire a prophet named Balaam to come along and curse the people so that the gods will destroy the nation of Israel so that he doesn't have to do it. And every time that Balaam gets up looking, he's standing on a, on a cliff overlooking the camp that the Israelites are camped out in. And every time that Balaam gets up there to pass a curse on the people of Israel, which is what he's been hired to do, he sends a blessing instead. He can't help it. God will not allow him to speak a curse. And so he does this five times. He goes up on this ledge, on this cliff overlooking the Israelites, and five times 
He tells Balak, King Balak, I'll go up there and curse them. Give me another shot. Give me another shot. And five times he tries to. And every time he tries to curse them, he ends up blessing them. Because God won't allow the cursing to happen. And so the Israelites kind of get to miss. They, they miss the bullet that Balak tried to shoot at them. But then later in the book of Numbers, in chapter 31, we find that Balaam goes back to King Balak and says, I can't do it. I can't curse these people. God won't let me do it. But I got an idea how to bring them down. And so what does he do? He encourages the king to send his lustful women into the camp so that they will partner with the men and in partnering they will encourage the men to worship the idols that the king of Balak worships. And it works. And long story short, God sends a plague on the people and it gets stopped because of some faithfulness of some men that are in the people of Israel. But the sin of Balaam is that he intentionally used sin to draw people away from God. And that is exactly what is happening here. It is an old thing from a very used playbook by the enemy. The enemy knows that we can be tempted. And so he sends this prostitute, these temptations, to lure us away from God by luring us in to sin. And so that brings me to today's big idea. I like to drop a big idea, just something I want you to remember today as you leave here that you can pray about and examine God's word, making sure that what I've said is biblical. And some of the big ideas that we've had over the last few weeks are things like trust God and hope in God. And today the big idea is simple again. It's simply follow God. There are going to be temptations in every single one of our lives. Because the enemy would like nothing more than to pull you away from worshiping God because you're caught up in your sin. Now, what is sin? Maybe I need to, to, to jump into that for just a moment. Sin is defined two ways in God's word. First off, it's defined as lawlessness against God's law. When we disobey God, when we do what God tells us not to do, that is sin. That's found in 1 John. Then in the book of James, James says, anytime we know the right thing that we should do, yet we don't do it, that is also sin. And the enemy that wants to pull you away from God, he will use those things. He will use disobedience. He will use knowing the right thing and not doing it. He will use those things to pull you into sin and therefore pulling you away from God and his righteousness, his following him. So the encouragement today is simply this, follow God. Live the life that God has called you to live. Don't be led astray. Don't go on a map quest and punch in the wrong letter. Always follow the path that God has for you. Always follow the direction that God has for you. Now let's move on. The harlot is this representative 
of consumerism and pleasure, but she is even more representative of that spiritual desire to live in our pleasure and consumerism. And, and this imagery goes back through multiple places of the Old Testament. If you've listened to any of the messages that we've been discussing uh, through Revelation, we know that John repeatedly, almost every other verse, John is pointing back to an Old Testament reference. John quotes or references the Old Testament in the book of Revelation over 400 times. And this is one of those examples. The imagery of a prostitute luring someone away from following God is very consistent through the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 21 says, How the faithful city has become a whore. Sorry for the harsh language, but that's what the Bible says. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. The idea is that God is telling Isaiah, tell the people that you used to follow me. You used to be a place of justice and righteousness. And now look at you. You've become unfaithful to me by turning to your sin or turning to idols. If I were, the, the imagery here is that if God was the faithful husband and we as his followers are supposed to be the faithful spouse then we're we're not doing a great job. Or maybe we just need to watch out for the ways that we might be pulled away from that faithfulness. Leviticus 17 verse 7 says this, So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. They shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. It's using that unfaithfulness imagery yet again. That we're supposed to be like a faithful bride, a faithful spouse to our God. If you're in this room and you're married, you probably know that faithfulness does not just happen. Faithfulness has to be intentional. Faithfulness has to be something that we actively pursue in our marriage. And the same is true with God. Following God is not easy. It takes work and intentionality. It takes that honed in focus, recognizing that there are going to be things that want to pull us away from following Him. And so instead, we stay singularly focused on living for God and loving Him because He is our God and our Savior. If you go into... Isaiah 54, Isaiah 62, Hosea chapter 2, Ezekiel 16. All of these chapters convey Israel as a faithful woman that God has redeemed from prostitution. We have walked away from our God and lived in our sin, yet God did what? He died on a cross to by us back to himself. That's the imagery that's given in the Old Testament. Because let's be honest, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have sinned this week? Every single one of us in this room, if you think you go 
days without sinning, you need to have a serious heart-to-heart with God. Because I'll tell you right now, and I don't, I can say this confidently from God's word, you're wrong. The fact of the matter is, is we all tend to stumble. We all tend to fall. But here's the beauty of it. God loves you so much that even when you rebel against him, when, when you walk away from him, when you are the prostitute, he comes along and he pays the ultimate price to buy you back to his beautiful relationship. That's why Jesus died on a cross. That's why we do the Lord's Supper. Is we're remembering the price that Jesus paid to redeem us. To buy us back. Even when we were, were rebelling against him. And so, this harlot, this prostitute, is described as consumerism as pleasure, but then she's described as the city of Babylon. Now, uh, we've mentioned this, but Babylon is the representative of all of the ungodly governments of the world throughout all of time. So when you see the word Babylon, many times in the Old Testament, it's literally speaking about a kingdom or a city, but outside of those references, Babylon most of the time refers to this vast government system, the world that is defying God. And so she is a representation of Babylon, of the unfollowing world, which alludes to her being a representative of all secular society through all of time. And so here we're painting a picture. So think of the imagery again. We're painting a picture that we as the followers of Jesus are supposed to be a faithful bride to Jesus. Following him, staying true to him in our relationship with him. Now look with me at the next verse, verse 7. Revelation 17, verse 7. It says this, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? Remember John marveled at the prostitute riding on the red dragon. Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carry her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Now, if you read throughout the rest of Revelation, we've already covered some of this. That is an exact description of Satan, the red dragon that comes out of the pit. Continue on. We're towards the middle of verse 8. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Verse 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, let me give you some imagery here. John speaks of this this dragon, this beast that sits on seven hills. This is a direct reference to Rome. I, I want to throw up a graphic of a Roman coin uh, for a moment. Now, if you look at uh, what's on the right-hand side, you'll see uh, one of the emperors reclining on seven hills. It's kind of hard to see, but if you look closely, there are seven hills. There are a couple of them that have been worn down because this coin is so old. But there are seven hills there. Those seven hills 
a representative of Rome. Rome sat in the midst and on seven hilltops that were in this region of Italy. So this reference to the beast sitting on seven hills is a direct reference to Rome. Now Rome, again, in the New Testament is the same as Babylon. Anytime that Rome's referenced, most of the time that reference has to do with not Rome itself, but Rome being a representative of all the secular governments of the world throughout all of time. And so the seven hills that Rome sits on, these famous hilltops, the dragon sits on them. And so he's making a reference again to the government. Now look with me in verse 15. Verse 15, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and multitudes uh, and nations and languages. Verse 16, And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. And Here's an interesting little side thing. First off, the waters that are being referred to, that is a direct reference to Isaiah 17. Go back and read Isaiah 17. But the reference here is that ultimately the beast turns on the harlot, on the prostitute, and consumes her. Think about it for a second. Sin may seem very appealing in the moment, doesn't it? When we're tempted by a sin, that temptation comes along because we look at the temptation and we go, I kind of want that right now. I know I shouldn't, but I kind of want it. And if you dive in, if you fall into that sin, what ends up happening? You may experience that pleasure that you wanted for that moment, but ultimately, long term, what is it going to bring? It's going to bring destruction. Just as the dragon, Satan himself, devours this prostitute, which is a representative of sin in the world, your sin may bring you momentary pleasure, but it will ultimately destroy you. Let's be honest for a second. Satan does not care about you. Your sin does not care about you. It exists to bring you pleasure for a moment and then bring destruction into your life. And that's why the big idea, I'm going to repeat it again, is simply follow God. Don't buy into the idea that you can sin and it not affect you or affect those around you. Because the fact remains that your sin, the effects of your sin will affect you ultimately because if nothing else, your sin separates you and your relationship from God. But your sin ripples out and affects the people around you. You want to know why bad things happen to good people? Because sin exists in this world. You want to know why there's sickness and destruction and death? Because there is sin in this world. And sin brings death and destruction and decay. And that is the warning here in Revelation 17. You see, evil is ultimately destructive. Even if it may appear for a moment to be beneficial, profitable, or beneficial. Satan doesn't care for you. Sin does not care for you. It just wants to bring you down. 
Okay, let's wrap this up. Look with me in chapter 18, verse 1. So, the prostitute has been devoured by Satan, by the beast. And look at what it says in verse 1 of chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a loud voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living." He explains that this prostitute has fallen. That fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. If you have been listening to the messages, this is a repeat from Revelation 14. And there is a warning coming from heaven to turn away from the prostitute and follow God instead. And if you continue reading through chapter 18, you're going to find that these kings and these merchants are weeping because the prostitute's been destroyed and their wealth and the money they've been making off of her and the pleasure they've been gaining from her is gone. And because they've been living in their sin, so focused on their sin, they've got nothing left. They don't have Jesus. They don't have the redemption that he brings. And so... We've seen the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, and how they are judgments against the things that pull our trust, our faith, and our worship away from God. And here, the judgment comes on those who live in the sin that pulls them away from God. So how are we called to live? Galatians 5, 19 through 23 says this, it's Familiar passage if you've been in church for very long. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. These are the things we're not called to do. This is a description, a big umbrella of what sin is in the world. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Catch this one, enmity. When you're causing fights. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger. How many, again, don't raise your hand, but how many in this room struggle with fits of anger? It's one of the sins I struggle with constantly. What else is listed here? Rivalries, dissensions, divisions. When we are opposing the unity that Christ brings to the body of Christ, that's classified as sin here. What else does it say? Envy. Drunkenness, the Greek word here for drunkenness is anything that you use to alter your mind. This is not just alcohol. Orgies and the things like these. That's a long list. Those are the things that we're supposed to not be living in. These are the things of the prostitute. But how are we supposed to live? Verse 22 of Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law against them. Guys, please hear me on this. There's going to be some kind of intensifying of temptations the further we get, the closer we get to the end times. Sin is going to be more prevalent. It is going to be more difficult to avoid. Sin is going to be around us. Temptation is going to be around us constantly. The warning here in Revelation 17 and 18 is that no matter where you're at in your walk with Christ, follow God. Don't be tempted by those temptations. Don't give in to sin. Live the way that God calls you to live. Live for Him. That's what the warning is here. We've been warned about the things that may pull our worship away from God, and now we're being warned about the sins that will pull us away from the righteousness of God. So here's my question today. What is the temptation that you struggle with? And what are you doing to intentionally get away from that temptation? And then I would say there's a second question attached to it. What are you doing to live in the fruit of the Spirit? I've made the argument many times. I believe that Galatians 5 has a formula here. Listing the works of the flesh, the sin that we're supposed to avoid. And then he intentionally says, but the fruit of the Spirit is. Basically meaning, if you can live in the fruit of the Spirit, then sin becomes less of an issue for you. So where are you in this walk with your Savior? Maybe you're here today and you're not walking. Maybe you've never come to a place where you've placed your belief in Christ, in Jesus. And let me just quickly say this. If you do not believe in Jesus, uh, let me explain who He is. He is God's Son. And He loves you so much that He came and taught died on a cross to save you from your sins and rose from the grave on the third day, proving that he's God's son and proving that he has victory over sin and death, over all the things that we're warned about here in Revelation. And he loves you so much that if you would believe in him and commit your life to him, he wants to save you from this prostitute and the destruction that comes through her. If you want to know more about that, if you're ready to make a commitment, if you've just got questions, I want you to reach out to us. Uh, We're going to close in a song, and and I'm going to ask Alan to come up here and be available. If you've got questions about what it looks like to follow God and, and believe in Him, to believe in Jesus, I want you to come talk to Alan. If you want to know more, uh, come talk to me. I'll be out in the foyer. But if you don't believe in Him, And you've got questions, please respond and and let us answer those questions for you. And if you are a follower of God, what areas of your life are you not following Him in? And what do you need to do to bring those areas of your life into submission to His authority, to His redemption? Because He wants to redeem you. He wants to redeem you your situation. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for who you are. 
that, Lord, there are many things in this world that want to pull us away from you. But you died on a cross and rose from the grave, having victory over all of those things. Showing that you have authority over all things. Lord, our prayer today is that you would help us to follow you. This is a difficult couple of chapters to read. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what your instructions are here. And help us to understand how we're supposed to live for you. So again, we thank you. Thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us. And we lift all of this to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.